Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is the last, can you believe it? Can you freaking believe it? This is the last pre-crisis episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. What I mean by that is even though the crisis won't reach Earth 2 for some time yet, the next episode you're going to get after this one is Crisis on Infinite Earth's number one can you believe it? it man it's been a long road my friend but we are finally here i by the way i am scott gardner i am talking to my uh, very good friend mike bailey it's a long road <laughs> is that the rainbow when movie you're on, yes what? <laughs> I want... when you're on your own Oh, no, that it, poor it, song gets cut off whenever I throw uh, First Blood onto my uh, MP3 player, unfortunately. But I know the <laughs> song you're talking about. That's like some, some music, like the Star Trek theme, the classic original series theme, has lyrics. The Andy Griffith Show <laughs> has lyrics. The Odd Couple had lyrics. Oh, God. That had nothing to do with Felix and Oscar. <laughs> It's very strange. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, uh, because we've been talking about, hey, next episode's Crisis. Technically, Crisis is its own show. This so, is true. This is very true, yes. Uh, so it will not be, episode 91 will not be Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. It will be Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Now, it should still, uh, I, why do I say it should still? It will uh, appear on the Tales feed. So don't worry, you don't have to subscribe to a whole new mm-hmm. show or anything, but uh, it, it, yes, it will be separately numbered, it will be separately bannered, it will have its own uh, distinct intro and all that sort of thing, but uh, yes, it, it is basically a, what, what would you call it, a, a, a spin-off or a yeah. affiliate show or <laughs> some term like that. So yes, it will not be episode ninety. One, but uh, but yes, that will be the next sequential episode up on the feed. And man, I'm telling you, I'm so so jazzed. But you know, I'm also I'm also jazzed about the books we are covering this time around. We uh, we have an issue of All Star Squadron, we have an issue of Infinity Incorporated, and then we have about uh, oh about twenty three um, Crisis Cross. No, no, I'm kidding. 
We only have two. <laughs> two this time. Don't turn off your iPod. Two this time as opposed to what we have seven last time. That was just nuts. So, yes. And we'll probably blow through those yeah. pretty quick, too. Yeah, so. I imagine we will. <laughs> All right. So, uh... I really have uh, no preamble beyond the fact that I wanted to, again, pimp that uh, Crisis is uh, right around the corner. So do we want to just go ahead and dive right into this? Yes, sir. We have All-Star Squadron number 43, Battle for the Stars, which isn't the story title. That's the the cover copy. You have uh, Firebrand grabbing uh, Starman's marital aid out of uh, Tarantula's hand. And the tarantula says, the gravity rod, it's mine! And Firebrand counters, you'll get gravity all right, 200 feet straight down, as uh, Amazing Man and the Guardian, uh, kind of ruining that little reveal, uh, runs in from the uh, the background. We have a ghostly apparition of the Starman hovering above them like he's uh, haunting them, but that's not actually what's going on. And we also get a special Golden Age gallery by George Freeman and Howard Bender. You know, I, a... I know you didn't mean to, but you made me feel really stupid just now. Because one of well, my big notes for this issue is, oh my god, the Guardian! Yeah, he's right there on the cover. <laughs> well, to be fair, I didn't really notice it until we were I, I was talking about the cover, so I didn't feel too bad. Um <clears throat> This book was seventy-five cents. It came out according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics uh, on December twenty-seventh, nineteen eighty-four. So it's a little over thirty years old at this point. Story title is Ultimate Victory. Roy Thomas and Mike Barron, editor, plotter, and dialogue. Arvell Jones and Bill Collins, illustrators. And every time I say Bill Collins, I think of Phil Collins. <laughs> Sue Sue Suyo. <laughs> She's an easy lover. Cody is the letterer. Gene D'Angelo. It's it's like you're recording with Dr. Bill Robinson. Gene <laughs> uh, D'Angelo is the colorist. The quote is, If it is necessary to fight in the first six months to a year war against the United States, I will run wild. I will show you an uninterrupted succession of victories. But I must also tell you that if the war is prolonged for two or three years... I have no confidence in our ultimate victory. And that was Admiral Yamamoto. The All-Star Squadron lie beaten within the confines of their Flushing Meadows SHQ, felled by Prince Daka and his mighty allies. Sumo the Samurai, ultimate warrior of Japan's ancient fighting arts. Kung, who can transmute his flesh into that of any beast. And Tsunami, who draws her strength from the waters of the earth. Prince Daka, or Dr. Daka, depends on what you want to call him, gives the order for Kung, Sumo, and Tsunami to kill the All-Stars and kill them now. Sumo and Tsunami call shenanigans on this as killing foes that have fought so valiantly is without honor. Kung doesn't care, though, and neither does Daka. Sumo reluctantly agrees and attempts to slay Amazing Man with his sword, but the timely intervention of the shield-wielding Guardian puts a stop to that. Daka tells Sumo to kill the Guardian, but this proves easier said than done, and eventually Guardian is able to land a solid right to Sumo's face. Daka tries to use the gravity rod to take care of matters, but the fight with the Guardian has allowed Firebrand and Starman to get back into the fight, and suddenly things are at a stalemate, with the bad guys holding Liberty Bell hostage and the good guys having Tsunami. This leads Daka to call for a tactical retreat. But he le- and he leaves, but not before saying that unless they want Sumo to start cutting up Liberty Bell, they will be at the Bronx Zoo by midnight. Any three of them can come. Except Starman. He can't come at all. 
The villains escape, and Starman uses his rod to, secu- rod to secure the premises, which would have been nice to do about five minutes ago. <laughs> Tarantula ties up Tsunami, and it is revealed that the Guardian showed up because Ro- Robot Man called him. If you'll remember in the previous issue, they mentioned that the Guardian, Manhunter, and Sandman were all on call with their beepers, but apparently the Guardian was the only one with the telephone on the hook, so to speak. Tsunami asks which one of them is going to torture her, adding that Firebrand is the obvious choice, but Danette is quick to point out that Americans don't go into that torture stuff, which leads to Tsunami calling her a hypocrite, but Tarantula steps in to point out that uh, that getting Bell back should be their first priority. The debate on what to do rages as the heroes can't seem to decide on a course of action, and Starman can't stop whining about how ineffectual he feels he is. Finally, Firebrand has had enough and grabs the rod and Tsunami and plans to trade them for Liberty Bell. Tarantula uses his wire gun to follow Firebrand, and they argue on the roof of the Perisphere about the boner Firebrand is making. That's not me, folks. Um... Tarantula uses his wire poon to follow her and talks about the king-sized boner she's making. (laughs) Ah, wow. Anyway, they argue, fuss, and fight, and finally Tarantula is knocked off the roof and would end up as Perisphere Pizza if not for Amazing Man breaking his fall. (laughs) Despite her near-involuntary manslaughter of the Tarantula, Guardian and Amazing Man back Firebrand's play. Starman still acts useless. He's really good at that this issue. The whole thing has apparently shown Tsunami that despite what Kung believes, these Americans are not wholly without honor. Firebrand takes the All-Stars jet for a ride to the Bronx, while Robot Man, Tarantula, and Starman stay behind. They're just hanging out. Johnny Quick calls, but Starman says she's not there right now. He doesn't add anything about her being kidnapped because comics. I figured having Johnny Quick would probably be a good idea. Anyways, the good guys and the bad guys meet at the Bronx, and soon the prisoner exchange is underway. Daka and Kung plan uh, to get the rod and the Guardian's invulnerable shield as well. Bell doesn't want to make the trade, but soon she and Tsunami are crossing over to their allies. Tsunami, it turns out, is a lip reader, and after seeing Kung and Daka conferring, realizes that something stinks in the Bronx Zoo, and it's not the monkeys throwing shit at each other. <laughs> a projectile is hurled and Tsunami uses her own body to knock Bell out of the way realizing that Daka and Kung have no intention of playing fair the fight begins again with Hero and Villain charging at each other the fight is furious as neither sides to be gaining the upper hand Daka finally gets the rod back and intends to use it to kill the All-Stars but Sumo stops him saying that they gave their word that there would be no treachery and as long as Sumo lives there won't be Daka is having none of this and orders Kung to turn into an elephant and bury the vermin beneath the wall. The All-Stars manage to save themselves from the attack, but Daka and his men escape. Tsunami has stuck around long enough to tell them that they have gained her respect, and now that she is a woman without a world, she runs off to seek her own fate. Bell tells Guardian to let her go, and adds that warriors of any stripe must act by their own code. Sumo did, and then Tsunami did, and it costs them dear. Can they do any less and still say they fight for justice? Next issue, the deadly debut of Night and Fog. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. You just like the idea of monkeys throwing poop. <laughs> I do. That was my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The notes from the All-Star Companion Volume 2. All right. First one here. Ooh, this is a lengthy note. This is the splash splash page. This is the opening splash page. 
Features Admiral Isoroku, Isuroko, I can say Yamato, I can't say this guy's first name. Uh, his 1941 statement about his superior uh, to his superiors about what may happen if Japan cl- declares war on the United States. Uh, he promises he will run wild for the first six months to a year with an uninterrupted succession of victories. But if the war is prolonged for two or three years, I have no confidence in our ultimate victory. He would uh, he proved a good prophet, but he wouldn't live to see the war play out himself. When his itinerary for an inspection tour of the Pacific Theater of War was learned via the top-secret American code-breaking operation known as MAGIC, his aircraft was ambushed and shot down on April 18, 1943. That's why I love this stuff, because I didn't know that. says, to conceal that fact uh, that Japan's codes had been broken, word was given out that a civilian coast spotter had seen Yamato uh, board the plane. Or Yama, I guess it's Yamamoto, I'm sorry, not Yamato, Yamamoto. Uh, the Guardian is the only one of the three heroes called uh, in the area who showed up at the Parisphere. Sandman and Manhunter are apparently not minding their receptors. But did she actually send out the call, though? That was the thing that I was a little... Uh, con- Robot Man did. That's, duh, that's right, yes. Uh, but to be fair, and it's something I didn't mention last issue... Uh... They say Manhunter is tracking down a case, so, uh, you know, he's busy. Sandman's just hanging out at his apartment with Sandy. His boy, young boy friend. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to cast aspersions on Wesley Yeah, not going there. (laughs) That's why his heart gave out. Tsunami captured... Expects to be tortured, but Firebrand says Americans don't go in for that stuff. Tsunami refers to U.S. concentration camps, that's in uh, quotes, for Japanese-American, though it's not the same thing as torture. That's right. On the letters page, Alter Ego founder... Yeah, we are we are steering far yes, clear of that, of, of that page. So tired of that part, yes. <laughs> On the letters page, Alter Ego founder and number one JSA fan Jerry G. Bales lauds annual number three, but jokingly chides Roy Thomas that there is still another story uh, to tell between this adventure and All-Star Comics 7 and 8, one which explains how Hawkman was elected chairman. Roy never got around to that one. Maybe the other JSAers just voted for him. (laughs) (laughs) The two extras in number 43 were a new Sandman pinup by Canadian artist George Freeman, who drawn for both Marvel and Captain Canuck. Your favorite Canadian? There you go. And a different approach to the cover scene of All-Star Comics number 5 done by Howard Bender, uh, who was then illustrating the third and fourth issues of America vs. the Justice Society. And anchor Dave Hunt. And does these wrapper? Nope, that's it for that page. There's also those little picture ones. I don't know if either one is relevant. Let's see here. Uh, no. Guest dialogue are Mike Barron and Lucy. Oh, that's his dog. It says Mike was uh, Mike has written for newspapers in Boston and for numerous magazines. Uh, he broke into comics with Nexus, his groundbreaking and award-winning science fiction title co-created with artist Steve Rude. He admits to being at least partly responsible for the Badger and other comic book titles and currently writes Detonator and Nightclub for Image. He lives in Colorado with his wife and dogs. Lucy is one of the latter. And uh, Mike is thanks for the photo. Mike Barron also, didn't he work on 
Punisher, I want to say, and I know he yes, was he the first writer on the Wally West, West Flash. Flash. Yeah, I was actually a, an avid fan of that in those days. The other picture here is of uh, Tony Dizaniga. Says was more closely associated in the 1970s and 80s with Roy Thomas's sword and sorcery titles. First, Savage Sword of Conan at Marvel, and then Arax, Son of Thunder at DC. That I did not know. Uh, but he was drawn, or he has rather drawn innumerable comics over the years for both companies, including the well remembered Jonah Hex. Damn straight. That's what I know him for. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do you got for notes on this one, Mike? Uh, what a what an awesome issue! I mean, it oh, yeah. really was just exciting from beginning to end, uh, except for the cover, which is kind of weak. Um, oh, I'm so glad that you said that because yeah, that's my note as well. I I, I don't like how Starman looks. Uh, Guardian looks fine. Everyone just looks off. I don't quite know how to explain it. It's like every it's like Tarantula is too skinny almost. It's kind of weird. Um, Page one, again, it looks like the art artist has just pulled the camera back a little too far uh, to give us the entire scene. It looks... I'm sorry, it looks like Daka's out of focus, almost. <laughs> like, the detail work isn't really uh, there. Do you think Page his first two... name is Nielsa, by the way? <laughs> really? <laughs> it reminds me of this bumper sticker I saw yesterday, or the other day when I was driving around. It said... Your Tufa King Close. <laughs> I like that. You know, and, and the funny thing is, is I go, when I tell Scott, he's going to laugh like that. <laughs> and you did. So, yay. Uh, pages two through four. God, Guardian is just awesome in this mm-hmm. scene. Sh- I'm a Guardian fan. Uh, you know, he was a huge part of the Superman titles at one point. This helped and- remind me of why I used to like this character so much. Because, yes, I totally agree with you. He's awesome. I love how he holds his own against Sumo in this part. I mean, he's got the shield. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a... You could call him an air stats like uh, Captain America. But he shows up. He's taking care of the situation. You know the sword hold the shield holds up to a short, the sword shield holds up to the sword. I can talk, I promise. And then the only thing that lets it down is on page four. That shot of him punching Sumo looks really stiff. It just looks yeah. like off. And and this is the thing about Arvel Jones is that I love his work. I love his work. And then there's one panel that makes you go, huh? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, okay, everything's awesome now. So yeah. Now, let me ask you something, I, uh, something I either never knew or have forgotten over time. I don't remember, but uh, the the Guardian shield, is there anything special about it? Because he himself remarks on the top of that page that he never thought that his shield would stand up to, uh, he says stand we'll be, up to uh, that, which is Sumo's sword. We'll be seeing that either in a future issue of this title, or it may have been in his Secret Origins. Oh, okay. All right, cool. Um because I was recently, uh, Van Z, I think it was, on the Tales Facebook page, uh, posted like a page of him picking out his shield. You know, it occurs to me that I don't think we've given that dude any shout outs on this show. <laughs> and we really need to. Van Z, dude, you keep the, the, the I want to say forum, and it's not a forum, the Facebook group hopping you keep it alive and mm-hmm. uh I, you know i can't speak for mike but dude i i love it i appreciate it so much so no, you can keep, speak for me i agree yeah keep up what you're doing because you're doing a fantastic job you you are doing the job i should probably be doing and just don't have time for it so yes uh, i love what you're posting up there very much so uh 
Across from page five is a Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths ad. Oh, yeah, I love that. Which love that. Uh, I used uh, to uh, make our little promo image thing. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. Uh, page five, why is everyone just fucking walking away? <laughs> Seriously. It's like, okay, fight's over. Uh, we're going to leave now. We're taking Liberty Bell with us. Uh, you can meet us at the Bronx, but Starman can't come. It's like Daka. It's like a bunch of little kids got into a fight, and now they're making up arbitrary rules about what happens next. Well, plus this is the only scene that 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 makes me go, huh? Well, not to mention the fact, why go through all this thing with the Bronx Zoo and everything? You're standing there with Liberty Bell. Why not just do a uh, you know? You give me the idol, I give you the whip moment right here why why go through all that later on you know i well the the answer is to because it's page five right (laughs) and there's there's 17 more pages to fill right Uh, this this is why this is why i've taken to when i explain stuff like this i say because comics and it really just 17 pages of them getting shawarma come on That sounds like a German food. Mm, We're at war. Warma. I've never had it, so... You come down here sometime, I'll take you out. We'll go get some shawarma. Okay. Um, page eight. Wow, Starman. Grow a freaking pear. Seriously, it's like... Shut up! Shut up! I'm not a soldier. I'm just a rich guy who stumbled into this hero thing. What if they kill Bell? It will all be my fault. I... I don't know what I should do. You know, when we saw your origin, you were pretty sure of what you should do. Right. So, yeah, this, this is a weird bit of characterization. And then we get the very Marvel Comics approach to storytelling. Where Firebrand's just like, screw it. I'm taking Tsunami, I'm taking the Rod, and I'm going to go get Liberty Bell back. <laughs> which is a terrible idea, but at least somebody committed to something. She's making a king-size then- boner! my favorite line of the entire issue i wonder if that's a reference to that joker story well i mean back in these days you know the 40s i mean evidently boner was a thing you know it was uh you know it was like a a goof or a baseball blooper or a mess up yeah because i know that uh i think the very first time i ever heard it was i got a, a bunch of um damn i can't think of the guy's name but the guy who basically invented the, the word blooper, he came out with a bunch of records that were called Pardon My Blooper. And there was a ton of them. There was like a, I think there was a dozen of them. And it was this guy had gone through television, you know, early television and radio broadcasts to collect bloopers, mistakes. And I remember the introduction of the of the first record. He says something about these are the mistakes, the the goofs, the boners. And I, you know, of course, Chris and I just started laughing. But you know, that was just that was a term they threw around back then, and now it means something completely different. So we've kind of dropped it from our lexicon. But uh, but yeah, they they used to say that. There was a there's a show out there called Hypnobops, hosted by a guy named Jim Moon. And normally he talks about, uh, you know, horror and, and, and those types of stories and movies and such. But he, uh, he did a, a long series, and he hasn't done a, another installment of it, but he did about eight or nine of them uh, called The Natural History of the Batman, where this man dug deep into the history of Batman. 
going into the comics and the movies. And he talks about that Joker story, the Joker's, I forget what it's called, but the, the word boner keeps being used. And the prevailing wisdom is that boner didn't mean what it meant. And he goes through the history of the word boner and where it comes from. And it comes from a baseball term. And how by the time that Joker story hit, it was probably starting to uh, to uh, mean, you know, the standing at attention so to speak uh but then again growing up growing pains the guys the uh, mike Seaver's friend's nickname was boner i mean that was in the 80s that was growing pain i never understood that which which one refresh me which which show was growing pains one with kirk cameron oh you know i don't think i ever watched well i take that back is that the one that had he had a hot co-star and she appeared in playboy and then they kicked her off the show or something like and yes. yes okay so i watched it after that whole thing, like looking for her, I think is all I ever watched it. Cause I remember that, uh, her, her playboy thing and wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, uh, he had a friend whose nickname was boner. They <laughs> called him boner. It was, and he was played by uh Chekhov's kid. Oh really? He was a, uh, he was yeah. a Koenig. Yeah. Wow. He's the one that passed away a couple years oh, ago. Oh yes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that's, and he was the one that was the Joker. In that uh, fan film where Batman fights the Joker and then a Predator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, God, what was the name of that? Uh, uh, it's not important, but yeah, I, I know exactly what you're I did not know that. Yeah, he was the Joker in that. It was really good, too. I liked it. Well, isn't, well, that, that entire fan film was really, really good. Um, it, You know, that show is what? That was 80s, right? Yeah. That seems a bit late to be using that that name and that term yeah. you know what i mean because it seems well, i was gonna say it seems to me well it was the case where it was synonymous with something completely different by that point because that's when we were kids so if somebody had a the right the right honorable member of the constituency standing at attention right jim moon referred to it as <laughs> the... see this is this is you know I, I joke with andy leyland all the time that basically you know, he and all of his fellow British podcasters, as far as us ugly Americans are concerned, they could like say the most atrocious thing, but because they say it with an accent, it sounds more dignified. Because <laughs> uh, we don't understand that there are differences in the English accent beyond like you know, you know, <laughs> Cockney and all that. Right. Um, there was a you know, Andy's from the north of England, which. And hearing him talk about it, the north of England is kind of like the south of America. Uh, you know, the the people of London think that the you know the the northerners are the the I don't want to call them rednecks, but <laughs> it, it it seems to have that dichotomy. You know, that that, that kind of and it, and it's almost weird that the north and the south would be flipped. Uh, it's almost like Earth three and Earth one, right? But um, but yeah, it's just that, like he he could. They they could make like the most atrocious joke ever, and we'd be like, ha, 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 "Money Python," <laughs> and, and 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 over there it's completely different. So, so you're <laughs> saying that that Andy Leyland is essentially like the hick of 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 Great Britain, then? Yes. Wow. That that sheds a whole new light on things. <laughs> <laughs> now he's gonna write me and say, "What the hell do you mean by that?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either that or a laugh. I mean, it's 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 a fifty fifty <laughs> shot. Um, 
But the the fight between Firebrand and, and everybody and, and the fellow and and and, and, and Tarantula, excuse me, that amazing man and all them get in. I like it because at first I'm like, why are they fighting? And I'm like, because they don't know what to do. They, and because they have been put in this position by the writer where they didn't take care of the situation in the Parasphere, now they don't know what to do. Do they trade the rod for Liberty Bell? And, and Firebrand's like, Liberty Bell's worth to me more than this cosmic rod, not thinking, oh my god, I'm going to put a nuclear weapon in the hand of my enemy. So I liked that. It was very, But again, it's very Marvel Comics. This is, this is Cap and Hawkeye fighting over something in the Avengers right. almost. So... Uh, jumping ahead to page 18, not that I didn't like anything, it's just, you know, the, the, the plot just continues. Sumo goes, uh, to Amazing Man, stay down, Negro, with a single go, goju Ryu strike, I shall end your misery together. He's like, misery? What misery? <laughs> and it's, 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 it, it's funny because he's, he's obviously in pain, but it too, it's just like, what misery do I have? What is your, I, I, I just found that kind of amusing. Uh, page 19, God, I hate Kung. God, I hate this character. <laughs> I think he's stupid. I really do. He's re- <sighs> He... I don't understand him. He's like Beast Boy. Yes. But different. <laughs> and... But shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's just a crappy character. I didn't like him when he was introduced, and I don't like him now. Um, and page 21, this isn't a bad ending. Uh, it's kind of abrupt, really. Yeah. But I like the fact that, you know... And this was a very common thing, especially like martial arts movies at this time. The, the concept of honor and all that. And the fact that Sumo is basically willing... It is a, a, has the courage of his convictions. Where he thinks what Daka is doing is wrong. Even though they're at war, to kill them in the manner that he was going to kill them was wrong. And Tsunami feels the same way. My only problem with this ending is that he tells Kung to kill him, and they just knock over a wall and leave. These these are like the worst villains ever. It really is like a little kid. I'm still kind of confused as, everybody can come, except Starman. Starman, you've got to stay home. Which he does, because... Starman's kind of a wuss throughout this <laughs> entire. Uh, He's entire a whiny issue. bitch. Yeah. So, but Liberty Bell gives us our you know uh, thoughtful Star Trek ending, <laughs> um, and asks the question you know can we do less and still and and still say we fight for justice? Eh, that's a good way. I mean, I enjoyed it, but that's pretty much all I got. I'm with you. I don't care for the cover. I think the inks are very nice, but that's about it. It's, uh, yeah, there's something about it. I think the coloring, the layout, bodies are a little weirdly positioned. Plus, it's like they're trying to have a fight while everybody is very mindful of the fact that, yeah, we're about to all fall to our deaths. So, yeah, it's it's very awkward. I, I just don't really care for it. Uh, first interior night. Holy shit, the Guardian! Yes, I was so happy to see him show up. I, I really do dig this character, uh, especially in this particular context. And, uh, you know, it has to be restated. He holds his own against Sumo, which this, you have to remember, this was a guy who held his own against Wonder Woman. So I think that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Because Guardian's essentially just a regular dude, isn't he? 
I mean, he works out and all yeah. that, but he's not Captain America. I mean, he's kind of a no. self-made superhero, kind of like Batman. So I think that's pretty neat that he's able to hold his own against Sumo. Uh, jumping ahead quite a bit here. Page six. All right, this drove me nuts. Where? Let's see if I can find it specifically. Page six, panel one. Starman says, Prince Daka has been able to beat me uh, since we first met over Pearl Harbor. No, you didn't. I actually checked for this last episode when we covered last issue. Starman can't possibly know that that was Prince Daka in the plane over Hawaii. He never saw him. Now, there is a shot where Prince Daka sees Starman out the window of the airplane, but he is far too far away for Starman to have seen him and recognize him again in this issue. So I call bullshit on that. But it is actually mentioned several times in the issue about how they, you know, he he remembers Prince Daka from over Hawaii in that prior story. And it's, no, can't be. Uh, Where the hell is all this water coming from? Uh, I know I pointed that out last time, but it is three times worse in this issue. There is a torrent. (laughs) Look at page seven, fourth panel. I mean, come on now. That's a river flowing through the perisphere. Where the hell is all this water coming from? (laughs) I mean, I've seen water main breaks. They ain't this bad. Not usually. This is ridiculous. Uh, Page eight. My note is simply awesome. I love this page. Starman, for all his angstiness right here, that last, that, you know, the really big panel, that's great, you know, um... I know I'm going to get beat up for saying this, but the anatomy here is very good. He just looks really dynamic. He cuts a very dynamic and imposing figure, and he looks great. Uh, love that costume. <laughs> He's obviously been working on his ads and his glutes. Oh, yeah. My God. But he looks great. You know, I, I think looking at this picture, you know what it is I think I like about him? He's what? very Superman. His outfit really evokes superman just with a completely different color scheme going for it but i mean if you saw that in black and white you could mistake him for superman it's it's essentially the same outfit and i really like that he kind of reminds me of do you remember the superman arcade game that if you played it two player the other guy kind of almost looked like a a photo negative superman or something Mm -hmm. his i think his costume if i remember properly was kind of similarly colored to this one our mutual friend alan leach jr has oh that's right that's why i hate him i couldn't remember yeah that was it yeah (laughs) with all he's given us he's not giving us the game (laughs) um page nine oh i love this part page nine what did Firebrand melt to get out of the Perisphere? And be sure you don't let that shit drip on you because they are standing right under it as it drips. I'm imagining this the, must have the, been like the a... Same, hmm? The same roof that Johnny Quick flew out of <laughs> I, in the previous issue I that guess. We were asking about. I mean, is this a window or something that she melts? I guess. I, so there's molten glass yeah, falling to the ground. Ouch! Yay! Don't get that in your eye. Ah, yeah, that kind of stuff just makes my ugh, makes my skin crawl. Damn, step away. All right, jumping ahead again to page... It's funny, you and I both skipped over the same pages. It's not like I didn't have anything nice to say about 11 and 12. Yeah. I, I really like them. I just don't have anything specific to say about them. Page 13, what a beautiful shot of the all-star special is that what that's called that airplane i believe it is yeah but i noticed something though on the very next page as prince daka points to it landing 
you know, given where the prop is and where the landing gear are, there's really not any clearance for this thing to land without acting like a lawnmower. Do you see that? <laughs> yes. They're they're equal with each other, pretty much. That's just, that's just kind of odd to me. You know, it makes you wonder how can it take off and land, especially land. That's that just looks kind of weird. Unless maybe the landing gear extends further down or something. I, I don't know. Um, on that same page, page fourteen, panel five, Daka calls Liberty or calls rather Liberty Bell Firebrand, and she doesn't correct him. I, I like this because it's nice to know that we're not the only ones that occasionally screw up and call these characters by the wrong names. As I've listened to old episodes, man, I actually do it a lot, and I apologize. Um, but yeah, I thought that was actually funny. It's um, where is it? Uh, it's the fifth panel. He says, "Once the gravity rod is in our hands, all Yankees will join you, Firebrand, and groveling before the might of Nippon." And she—that's <laughs> not Firebrand. That's Liberty Bell. Uh, let's see. Next to last panel. The hell page was I? What, what are you saying? We all look alike, Daka? <laughs> oh, that's the same note about the print. Okay. Page 20. Oh, yeah. This is my biggest artistic note of the entire issue. Uh, fifth panel, super stiff. Sumo looks like one of those, what are they called? The terracotta soldiers yes. brought to life or, or like maybe just animated enough that the, that the arm moves and slices and that's it. He is stiff as an action figure in that. You know what he looks like? He looks like one of those cardboard cutout things that have like the little hinge on the arm that makes it go up and down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He also looks a bit like a Japanese big boy too. it's holding up a giant plate of sushi (laughs) instead of a burger uh last page last panel liberty bell is colored like the guardian which i'm not complaining about it actually looks kind of cool she looks like girl guardian or something but i just thought it was worth noting that uh the colorist actually uh goofed in that one you know on one hand, I'm a little upset that they've ditched her cape, but I like the fact that they did it because it became completely impractical in battle. So uh, I really like her outfit. I, I, oh, I yeah. love. Here's the thing about Liberty Bell. One, she's supposed to look like Veronica Lake. Mm-hmm. That's who she was made to look like and a bunch of years ago, like 2010, I think. My wife and I watched this uh, movie. It was, it was around Halloween that starred Veronica Lake, and and I and watching it, I'm like, oh my god! One, I could see why Kim Basinger was cast as the Veronica Lake lookalike in L.A. Confidential. Two, it made me think that Kim Basinger could have played uh, Liberty Bell rather effectively. Yeah. Uh, and three, Veronica Lake was gorgeous, uh, but looking at this costume i mean firebrand has is basically wearing kind of a bodice with a sheer shirt over it that that pink shirt's transparent and that's kind of sexy Mm -hmm. i think liberty bell's outfit is actually sexier because she's got that collar and she's got the boots and the pants i mean just everything about her just screams like it's sexy without showing any skin and i appreciate that right I, I, i like that better sometimes right because uh, it, it's just it's just a neat costume yeah no uh, she I, does I, have a very sexy look yeah i like liberty bell a lot she's always been one of my favorite of the all-stars although uh i i like the cape i miss the cape when she's not wearing it uh you know that was pretty much it um 
taken as a whole, meaning this issue and the prior issue, I think this was a really good story. Uh, the art was really nice in both issues, although I felt strangely it was a bit stiffer in this second part of the story mm-hmm. than in the first. But overall, um, I do like this art style. And uh, yeah, it, it was a good story. It was a good story that I wasn't expecting to be a good story. So that's uh, you know added bonus there. Yeah, like like I said last time, I, I for whatever reason I I thought that in the like, past issue forty, we're kind of in the downhill slide, except for the crisis issues mm-hmm. of the title, and it's 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 pretty much turning to be the exact opposite of that, where you know the title's chugging along just fine, right. which is kind of sad then that it's really going along fine, and then you know the entire concept of the uh, of the team is pulled out from under. Yeah, it gets turned on its ear. Well, no offense to you, my friend, but uh, I'm glad you're proven wrong because I was nervous when you used to say that because, as I've said before, this is my era of All-Star. This is when I was getting into the title, and I have, you know, while they're indistinct memories, I have fond memories of this title at this time. So I was hoping that, geez, I hope I'm not wrong and we get to it and it sucks, you know, so I'm, I'm... very pleasantly surprised that even a storyline that I didn't expect to like uh, was really good because for some reason, I, I don't know why I just, I don't remember thinking that this story with, uh, you know, the, the, with the Japanese was all that good. I don't know why I thought that maybe it's because as you, as you point out, um, you know, Kung sucks and he does. And Prince Doc is kind of a stupid villain. Sumo's just flat ridiculous. And Tsunami never liked her at all. So yeah, your villains are not great, but a, a good story made up for that. So I, I, that's all I can imagine is why I, I didn't think it was good or didn't remember it to be good or whatever, just because the villains are kind of unmemorable. But uh, no, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to jump ahead in the DC timeline by about roughly 40 years or so and take a look at Infinity Incorporated number 12. This is the March 1985 cover dated issue actually went on sale according to Mike's amazing world of comics on December 20th, 1984 with an original cover price of a buck 25. The cover is by Jerry Ordway and it depicts uh, Brainwave Jr. using a mental whammy to kind of throw both his uh, teammates and a gathered uh, throng of reporters aside. Now, don't beat me up for this, Mike. I don't like this cover. But, you know, the thing is, it's it has nothing to do with the art. It's the weird, um, I don't know what you would even call this. It's not a color choice. It, it's, there's these, these lines of force emanating from Brainwave Jr.'s temple. And the way the lines are drawn and the fact that it's really not colored at all. It's basically it's a black and white image with these lines of force being alternately colored blue and white that it's distracting. It just throws off the artwork because the artwork is great. It's Jerry Ordway. But because of these concentric circles and the 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 weird coloring it it just doesn't work for me at all i i find it to be kind of honestly i think it's kind of a visual jumble it's it's hard to focus the eye uh on the image if that makes any, it it almost comes off like a like one of those optical illusions that doesn't quite work it just gives me a headache rather than making the the sailboat appear you know what i mean um i agree with you <laughs> completely 
I, I like this cover except for the the coloring thing. It just, it, yeah. it just throws me off. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work unfortunately. Uh, let's see here. Roy Thomas is the writer slash editor. Don Newton and Joe Rubenstein were the artists on pages one through three. And man, I wish they could have been the artists in the entire issue. Tim Burgard and Tony Dizniga are the artists on page four through twenty three. Dan Thomas is credited as co-plotter. A. Roy and A. Tallin are the colorists. And Cody, again, is the letter. The story is entitled Press Conference. The quote is from the movie I despise above all other movies, Annie Hall. It says, I don't want to live in a city where the only cultural advantage is that you can make a right turn on a red light. Which, what that has to do with the story exactly? I don't know. We open to a Captain Carrot telephone ringing off the hook. A groggy, blonde-haired man answers sleepily. He is Hector Hall, and he has been wakened by Jade and Obsidian, who are wondering where the heck he is. They've been waiting for nearly an hour for the Silver Scarab to give them a lift to the press conference. Hector apologizes, saying that he and Lita Trevor uh, had a late night. (laughs) Yeah, I'll bet. And says that they should go on without him and that he'll catch up. After waking his dozing girlfriend by a quick slap on the ass, they quickly don their superhero garb and the Silver Scarab and Fury are on their way, streaking over the Hollywood Hills sign. On Hollywood Boulevard at the once glamorous Gleaver, uh, yeah, Gleaver, Grover <laughs> Cleveland Hotel, the public and the press have gathered to witness the arrival of the stars of the day, the members of Infinity Incorporated. First to show up via limo are Power Girl, the Star-Spangled Kid, and the Huntress. The trio is quickly interviewed by Andrew Vinson on their way in, and Vinson asks about their defeat of the Ultra-Humanite. We then cut to a scene of Ultra watching the broadcast over the shoulder of his lackadaisical prison guard, and we see that Ultra is recovering nicely from his bout of the stupids that he came down with at the end of the Generations saga. Next to arrive is everyone's favorite feathered hero, Northwind. Too bad there wasn't a nasty updraft as he dove out of the helicopter, followed by Nuclon. From their respective homes and television sets, the proud parents of both heroes watch the proceedings. Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. This is 1984, and I know damn well that there were vast swaths of the United States where cable TV was simply unavailable at this time, mm-hmm. yet those bird assholes in Fytheria get crystal clear reception? What the, well, what the hell is that all about? Okay, 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 okay. You're willing to accept that there is a city of bird people. I never said I was willing cable. to accept that. <laughs> Okay, okay, but, well, by its very definition, and you not going, what the hell is going on here, I have assumed that you accept the fact that it exists, okay? Why is it, so cable TV is the bridge too far for you? Oh, it's just flat silly. Anyway, Jade and Obsidian show up uh, via taxi cab, how embarrassing, and are immediately upstaged by the arrival of the Silver Scarab and Fury, whose awkward landing provides us with a nice crotch shot. Thank you very much. In Westchester, New York, down the road apiece from Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, Carter and Shira Hall, Hector's proud parents, entertain guest Doc Midnight, who's sitting facing away from the TV, Ted Knight and Alan Scott, Uh, while they likewise watch the proceedings on television. 
Now, I can't help but wonder how many orphanages burned down and senior citizens got mugged while all the heroes of Earth 2 are watching TV all day. But again, you know. In Franklin, Wisconsin, home of... Home of... Um, the hell is in Wisconsin anyway? At the Hayden residence, they watch their little Jenny Lynn on the tube. Now, all the Wisconsin listeners are going to write in with protest letters, but, you know, they got to roll with these things. And from an undisclosed location, Obsidian's drunk of a stepfather, or would that be foster father? I'm not sure. Watches the idiot box as well, thinking that that absinthe fellow looks kind of familiar. That I kind of thought was funny. The heroes assembled... Star Spangled Kid introduces the mayor of Los Angeles, who welcomes Infinity Incorporated to, quote-unquote, our fair city, as Hank Kin, Brainwave King, rather, Hank King, Brainwave Jr., slips in a little late. Star Spangled Kid takes the podium and begins to tell of the reason he's called this press conference. He reminds the audience of his status as Sylvester Pemberton of heir to the Pemberton fortune, which included the uh, Stellar Movie Studio, which closed back in 1976. With the help of his attorney, Star Spangled Kid struck a deal to keep the studio, which sits on land owned by the city, in exchange for becoming L.A.'s resident super team. Star Spangled Kid then goes round-robin on the introduction of the various members of the team. We've already met them, so I'm skipping that. When he gets to the Huntress and Power Girl, turns out that they have a little announcement to make they've decided to go back to their quote-unquote rightful place on the JSA. But, promises Power Girl, they'll be back anytime Infinity Incorporated truly needs them. And then with that, they're away. Star Spangled Kid opens the floor to questions, and the very first one is, don't you think you're getting a bit old to be called the Star Spangled Kid? The kid agrees and so offers a reward to the person who can come up with a name to replace it with the stipulation that it still contains the words Star Spangled. And here I have to issue a little spoiler alert. I don't usually spoil future things, but this one kind of kind of is important to me. So spoiler alert, the Star Spangled Kid will receive a new name eventually, and it will not contain the words Star Spangled. A woman... Uh, who has somehow or other heard the rumor that Jaden Obsidian might be the children of GL, and I really didn't think this was public knowledge, so how she knows this, I don't know. This woman asks who their mother is, but Obsidian says that answering that would infringe on their personal privacy. In truth, Jade thinks to herself, they haven't the slightest idea. Suddenly, Phil Brody, chief spokes asshole for the People's Committee to Keep Superheroes Out of Los Angeles, commandeers the podium, objecting to Nuclon, who, he says, with an atomic symbol on his chest and standing seven and a half feet tall, certainly didn't get his powers by eating Captain Crunch. Nuclon explains to the gathered crowd how he received his powers and assures them that he's not a nuclear threat. He goes on to say that he only wants to serve his country, the way his dad did, who was killed in uh, Vietnam. This wins over the crowd and their applause drives Brody off the stage. After a couple comic convention-style questions, a reporter jumps up and demands to know what he is doing here, pointing at Brainwave Jr., when his late father was a well-known criminal and accused killer. Brainwave Jr., whose dad just died, you'll recall, tries to defend himself and his father, but eventually just says, ah, the hell with it, and tries to storm out. He is then set upon by the newshounds who smell blood, and he has to brain-blast the lot of them to clear a path. 
Instantly regretting these actions, Brainwave Jr. tries to stammer an apology, and Jade just whisks him away with her power pulse. Later, in a safe spot, Brainwave Jr. thanks her and says he's leaving to sort himself out. Now, as a personal aside, I've been waiting for this. I remember that he didn't stay on the team very long, and I was kind of itching for him to scoot. Um, you know, sorry to all his fans, but I never much cared for, cared for Brainwave <laughs> Jr. It's mostly the name and his kind of lame power set. Back at the conference, the star-spangled kid tries to recover the thing when a reporter suddenly blurts out that he knows that the Silver Scarab is really Hector Hall and that his parents are Hawkman and Hawkgirl. The crowd... Surprise! (laughs) The crowd, including reporter Andrew Vinson, are stunned. But Hector was kind of prepared for this possibility and, with the prior blessings of his folks removes his mask, and reveals his no longer secret ID on national television. He reminds the assemblage that his girlfriend, Fury, is the daughter of Wonder Woman and General Steve Trevor, which is public knowledge. Not to be outdone, Nuclon then drops his cowl and spouts off his real name as well. And of course, Northwing just has to get in on the act. He himself even points out that he never even needed a mask in the first place, Uh, And he does manage to look ever so slightly less ridiculous without it. Kind of like Bozo the Clown wearing dress shoes less ridiculous. Jade and Obsidian reveal their secret IDs as well, uh, at which time GL's old nemesis, Green Lantern's old nemesis, the Harlequin, shows up and gives the team a bit of trouble. She doesn't stay very long, however, and when she disappears, Jade suspects that the only reason that she came was to get a close-up look at herself and Obsidian. But why did she do that, wonders Jade, unless she's dot 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 our mother? The brief demonstration of the team's abilities ended. The star-spangled kid concludes the gathering as Jade and the Obsidian resolve to get to the bottom of the mystery of their parentage once and for all. Next issue, even Paradise has thorns. Alrighty. Opening up the book that I should have opened up five minutes ago. <laughs> You know, and I was just going to say how much better this works when when you have the All Star synopsis and I have the Infinity synopsis, since we, you know, we I only have the 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 Companion Volume Two, and you've got yeah. Companion Volume Four, and then you're not even ready. Yeah. in your mouth, see where that gets you. <laughs> Alrighty, looking at the notes in the All Star Companion Volume Four for Infinity Incorporated Number Twelve. For reasons not... What the hell? Wait, huh? Eh? Oh, okay, I see. Sorry, the way they have this laid out, it's really screwed up. (laughs) Usually when you read something that has columns, you read one column, then you go to the middle column, then you go to the next column. They just have it separated across the top. It's really weird, so... Mm. I would have screwed up anyways. Alrighty, the Huntress and Power Girl officially... Well, let me start that all over again. Alright, looking at the official notes for (laughs) All-Star Companion... uh, ah, What the hell is wrong with me? I gotta stop drinking this early in the morning. Uh, Suddenly, Scott's co-host forgets how to talk. (laughs) I'm like Florida. Uh, Okay, here are the notes from All-Star Companion Volume 4, which has a beautiful Jerry Ordway cover. 
The Huntress and Power Girl officially bow out of Infinity Incorporated membership, returning to their duties with the JSA. Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, and Obsidian publicly reveal their true identities in this story. Those of Fury and Star Spangled Kid are already, were already known. This is the first appearance of Yolanda Montez, the tabloid journalist fated to become the second Wildcat. Lyda and Heck have a Captain... Spoiler! Lyda and Heck have a Captain Carrot phone in their bedroom. That's cute. Uh, for the first time, no heroes from the Golden Age JSA except for Wonder Woman in a single panel are seen in costume, though several make cameos in their civilian identities. As mentioned in the letters pages of section uh, number 11, the first three pages of number 12, the last artwork by Don Newton, were penciled at a time when severe illness had strained his heart and caused him to lose an alarming amount of weight. Yet, they were as good as anything Don had ever drawn. And that is it. Wow, that was sudden. Okay. <laughs> There's not even really any um, notes for the pictures and anything. So, wow. what do you got, Scott? Uh, all right, I already pointed out about the cover. First three pages of this book are gorgeous. Now, I know I say this sort of thing a lot, but I mean it. It is gorgeous. Um, this reminds me so much of Alan Davis and Paul Neary. And believe me, folks, that is high praise. I think the world of that particular art team. This is... Um, who did I say this was? This is Newton and who's his inker here? Damn, I've lost my notes. Uh, his inker, shit, i got to go back to his ink. Oh, Joel Rubenstein. That's right, Joel Rubenstein. Yeah, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I, I really love this. It, it's too bad they couldn't have done the entire issue. That said, though, I really like the art in the, in the rest of the issue as well. But yeah, those first three pages are just beautiful. Can, can, I, can I just interrupt that for one second? Sure. I agree with you that the art is stunning, except that final panel on page two, where for some reason Hector looks like an old man. You mean the one where he's either pulling up his pants or covering his junk, that one? Yeah. He does, but you know what it reminds me of? And of course, you, you've never read this, so it wouldn't remind you, I guess, but that particular stance and the, and the look on his face and everything really reminds me of alec haldwin uh holland rather alec holland in the very first issue of the uh ween and rights and swamp thing it really looks like him that's weird I, I'll, I'll agree with that but yeah you're right he does look like a much older man in that he doesn't look like a what's he supposed to be like 20 ish mm-hmm. yeah he doesn't look that in that you're right that is very true i like the pseudo naked uh lita as well but yeah, I really like the art in this a lot. Um, page two, panel one, we are reminded that this is a direct only book because when uh, when he answers the phone and Jade kind of fusses him out for leaving them waiting nearly an hour, his response is, Christ, I'm sorry. I just thought that was interesting that to him know. slapping Fury's ass to yeah. wake her up. Yeah, that's true too, yeah. Um. Not that, you know, I'm prudish or anything, but yeah, that when I turned to that, it kind of surprised me that he said that. I'm like, whoa, yeah, this is 84. Yeah, that's kind of, okay. <laughs> but this was a direct-only book, and that was kind of the point, was to kind of um, make them a, a little, I, I hesitate to say make them a little more adult, but that was kind of the intention, was yeah. to make them a little more grown-up, if you know what I mean. 
Uh, just had a general note here about Des, uh, Dizaniga Inks once again. Damn good stuff. And uh, a bit overpowering, but in a good way. I like that it lends a, a uniform look between the, the various issues and the various uh, pencilers that he's inking. Um, and, you know, thinking about both Newton, who at this point, you know, had, had just passed away, and now uh, Tony D's you know, damn it, why why are so many of these guys dead now? It just makes me feel awful and it makes me feel old when I look at comics like this and these people are gone now, you know? It just it breaks my heart. But not to linger on a on a depressing subject. Page five, next to last panel. Brace yourselves, folks. I'm actually uh, gonna say something nice about Northwind. I like that shot. That actually looks really cool. Artistically it's a good shot. Yeah, it is. It really looks nice uh page six panel one um okay mike you can decide whether or not you want to bleep you want to use the bleep button or not i'm i'm at your mercy and discretion here but give me a fucking break you see the panel i'm talking about which one page Uh, six panel one yeah yeah page seven panel one yeah let's put the blind guy in the corner that's that's not wrong at all pages eight well i also like the fact that the blind guy goes how does it feel watching something so (laughs) (laughs) you're right i didn't even catch that oh man poor doc midnight uh pages eight and nine they let him drive (laughs) (laughs) yeah he drove over there you should see their lawn right now (laughs) the car the car's parked in the spare room (laughs) No, it's in, it's in the grass opposite of the road. So, so, it's, so he spun around and ran over one of the lawn ornaments. They had a mailbox when this day started. Oh, that's wrong. And the neighbors are like, Christ, the halls let the blind guy come over. Honey, quick, get the kids in the house. I see. I see Doc Midnight coming down the street. <laughs> oh, I can't see. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Magoo, you've done it again. <laughs> oh man. <sighs> Pages eight and nine. I just think this is a really nice two-page splash. It's uh, it's dynamic with nothing going on. I just that's a hard uh, trick to pull, and I think it looks really awesome. Uh, page ten, the one, two, three, four, five, six panel. Star Spangles attorney Ron Burgundy. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> Uh, page well, 11. that escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> page 11. I think this is worth pointing out. Huntress lets slip that the Batman was her father to the public. And I think this is the first time that's uh, that's made known, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I have not read every single one of the Huntress solo stories and those Wonder Woman backups. But just the fact that I can't remember it happening prior to this and the woman in the crowd or is it a guy? A guy in the crowd says it's been rumored for a long time, but I've never, uh, but I never heard she admitted it before. 
makes me think this is Roy Thomas letting us know, hey, by the way, this is the first time she's saying it. So I thought that was uh, that was worth pointing out. Page 12, those three panels together. For a TV reporter, Andrew Vinson is one unkempt shaggy bastard. He really needs to like get trimmed up and everything. He looks like Vandal Savage right there. Page 15. I did catch that uh, this is Yolanda Montez and then forgot to write it in my notes. I'm really glad that that was covered in the uh, All-Star Companion. But I have to ask, girl, what the hell are you wearing? Go home and change your clothes. You look flat ridiculous. Scott, I uh, I say this with all respect, but outside of the headbands, you shut your mouth, sir. <laughs> I'm not saying she's not smoking hot, but she's supposed to be. Of course, she's a reporter she's for a, a Rockstar reporter. magazine. But yeah, still. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 80s. Uh, <laughs> page Let's seven. Let's get physical. <laughs> physical. Page 17, next to last panel. Am I the only one that thought that they were going to kiss here? I thought they were going to do more than kiss, to be (laughs) honest. Um, Yeah, he's... But you know what? At the same time, there is holding on to the arms of the woman that you care about. And then there's... It looks like he's about to force himself on her, actually. Well... Look how he's grabbing that arm. Yeah, it it does. But I kind of like the... I kind of like the tender side that no. maybe we were seeing a pseudo tender moment. You know, this this would have gone a long way to redeeming this character for me is if they had a, had a relationship. I think I actually would have really liked that. Because mm-hmm. there's something about... I want to like Brainwave Jr. I just don't. And, I, you know, like I said before, it's that combination. He's got a ridiculous name and his powers kind of suck. But other than that, I mean... You know, if they'd just given him a personality and something productive to do, I probably would have liked him a lot better. But at the same rate, you know, page 17, uh, last panel, you know, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Because, yeah, he just never worked for me. Well, for me, he was always uh, let off because I hated Norda so much. So (laughs) Norda Norda was the focus of my hatred. So... (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, if he had taken Norda with him, I think this book would have improved like so many percent because I like everybody else, you know, I really like everybody else. So, yeah, well, that's fine. Now we have concentrated hate on one character. So that works. (laughs) No one likes Norda. (laughs) Page 18, last panel. Um, I don't know why I just really like that panel of, uh, of, uh, Silver Scarab uh, pulling his cowl back and revealing his secret identity. That actually you think looks he's really hot. cool. Just, just admit it. He's dreamy. Pages 19 and 20. Uh, my note for this is just simply, I hope this is paid off. Um, what I'm talking about is everybody drops their secret idea on national television. I really hope this comes back to bite them in the ass. And I can't remember that it does, but it would be nice if it does. Cause I think this is a really <laughs> stupid move. Uh, secret identities exist for a reason and it has to be pointed out obsidian looks flat ridiculous with a human head uh speaking of ridiculous the harlequin's outfit i know i pointed this out before so i won't belabor it but damn what a strange looking get up this woman's got outside of the 40s this sort of thing just doesn't work somebody should go wow really page 21 oh yes this is one of my favorites Page 21, last panel. Nuclon takes a dump on an old lady. Either that or she's worshipping his giant ball sack. One of the two. I'm not sure which. I know that's really low humor, but 
it really does look like that's what's going on here. That's it for <laughs> Infinity Inc. number whatever the hell issue this is. 12. I dug it. Despite all my snarky, smart-ass little remarks and everything, I really enjoyed this issue a lot. I'm still stuck on Dr. Midnight Drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We haven't lost it like that on air in quite some time. Um, <clears throat> uh, I like this cover, but like you, I have problems with the coloring and the effects. So, Like, all the figure work is fine. Uh, I just don't really care like that. Uh, page two, uh, I it's funny that you had that note because my note says, I guess we're going to take advantage of this being a direct market book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and him smacking her ass to wake her up. Uh, well, you know, some people have that relationship, so who am I to judge? Uh, page six, well, we finally found some people that like Norda. But then again, they kind of have to, don't they? Because they're his parents. <laughs> <laughs> and Norda doesn't suck enough that nobody, uh, that even his parents hate him. It would have been great, though, if they went, doesn't Hector Hall look great in his costume? I wish either he or his mother were saying, uh, what else is on? <laughs> uh, Gary Mann looks like uh, Ron Burgundy and a little like Jerry Ordway, too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, page 14, really nice moment. Uh, in my opinion, with Nuclon's mother, uh, mm-hmm. where she, you know, he, uh, you know, he's he has his say about his dad, and uh, you know, they tell him he did a good job, and he goes, "Did I honest?" And she goes, "You did, Albert, honest." And she's crying, whereas she... it kind of looks like the Adam is about to make a move. <laughs> Does she look like she's drawn by Kurt Swan in just that one panel right there? A little bit. I can kind of see that. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of like that. Page 15, I had a note. First appearance of Wildcat 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, page 20, Norda takes off his mask. No one cares, Norda! <laughs> <laughs> look, look. Silver Scarab being Hector Hall, who is the son of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. So you just revealed those identities. That's news. Everybody knew about Fury. Albert Rothstein's kind of pushing it, because who the hell is Albert Rothstein, you know? I mean, I like him. He's a great character. Uh, Jenny Lynn Hayden revealing her identity, that's not a big deal. She wasn't wearing a mask in the first place. Norda taking off his mask. Hey, look, the bird guy isn't wearing a mask. So now we know his identity, so we can strike at his loved ones. No one cares, Norda! God, you (laughs) suck! Um... This was a... (laughs) Too harsh? Uh, No! (laughs) This was a really offbeat issue. But I liked that. I like that it's a a character-building issue. In that we really take our time getting to the press conference, dealing with the press conference. Little things happen here and there. Had a nice little moment in the beginning with, with, you know, showing Hector and Fury post night of <laughs> bumping uglies uh which they kind of dance around even though he smacks her ass you know the annoyance of jade and obsidian that they're not there to pick them up and that they're going to be late for their press conference sylvester coming to the press conference in a nice car with power girl and huntress on each arm and then being a little uncomfortable but he's like it's showbiz baby i mean just everything about it was great <laughs> Uh, I really liked the artwork in the middle section, too. 
Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, I'm not really familiar with the the gentleman's art. And I think this may be the only thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I did not recognize that name. Tim Burgard? Yeah, I, yeah. I did not recognize that name. I wonder if it's an alias or something. It might be because his style looks like a bunch of other people's styles. So mm-hmm. there's a little Ordway in there. There's a little Jurgens. There's a little, like, Mike Grell. There's, you know... Just a lot of different stuff all coming together at once, but it made for a really great issue artistically. Now, I liked it a lot. I uh, I have nothing bad really to say about it except the one or two like minor art niggles, and I feel bad like kind of making a critical note on one of the last pages Don Newton never drew. But it was just like I look at Hector Hall, and it just doesn't look it doesn't look the same as everything else in the picture, right? So I'm wondering if that was Joseph Rubenstein heavily inking something, or I just, I I don't understand. But anyways, other than that, great issue. Fantastic. Loved it. i just like to point out there is a a house ad in here across from page five, uh, one of my favorites. It says, for the past 12 months, he's been monitoring the DC Universe, watching, waiting, scheming. Now you'll find out why. DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay, let me ask you a question. I could see this ad running in like that DC sampler that came out in 1984, right? Mhm. Why didn't they change the logo when the book's coming out next month? I wonder did it did, was the change that late? You know. That's a really late change. I mean, Yeah, I, you would think so, yeah. Peek behind the curtain, folks. I did some fancy, not fancy, but I did some basic Photoshop to kind of crop out that logo. Mm-hmm. And put the the traditional logo that came that the series actually had in the little teaser image I created, which mm-hmm. was more of a pain in the ass than I thought it was going to be because I'm no Chris Honeywell. But uh, <laughs> but wow, just like this is the month before Crisis and it's still there. So either they didn't feel like changing it and just ran it, or you know. It was that it was like that last minute because that logo would have looked terrible on the series. The one in this ad, I it's it's a good thing you're not another Chris Honeywell because my my life just simply could not handle two. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, all right, folks. Uh, what'd you say, Mike? Did you want to take a little break yeah, or just go ahead? Let's take a break and... and play some trailers. Uh, all right. For the, for the other fine shows on the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, all righty. Come back and do our penultimate pre crisis or final pre crisis crisis <laughs> management. Unlike the crisis management we're going to be doing during the crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hi, folks. Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaikin pen, Guy Gorker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. (sighs) Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? 
No, they just streamlined it so the two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arion. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America and to the final Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse Crisis Management Edition, at least pre crisis. <laughs> uh, I'll be talking more about that when we get to the end of this segment, folks. All synopses are from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. This time, mercifully, we are looking at two and only two books. First one is GI Combat number 275. The Monitor appears before the haunted tank and crew and is even seen by the startled ghost of Jeb Stewart. The Monitor's physical appearance is revealed, uh, first revealed rather, in this story. Now this is the second of two back-to-back Monitor appearances in GI Combat and that slight synopsis doesn't really fit for this particular issue because the Monitor's role is on page three, first two panels. This is what it reads. Meanwhile, above the blazing battlefront, the haunted tank's ghostly guardian rears before a silent observer, the Monitor. All we see, the only thing we see, is the Monitor's satellite in both panels, pardon me, in both panels, which if you don't know it's a satellite, you'd never know what the hell it was because it's drawn roughly the same size as Stuart and his spectral horse. And it seems to be floating in the same ghostly phantom zony realm as they are. Neither the Monitor nor Lila are shown or speak. So it's really strange um, to be kind of coupled with the, the synopsis that covers both appearances that says his physical appearance is revealed because it's he's not even shown in this particular one. And it's also strange because, you know, last issue of GI Combat was arguably 
you know, or at least the, you know, I was going to say the best, but it's, it's at least the most revealing. It's not the best one. Cause I mean, I, I think there were more involved appearances, but it's the one where we got the the best look at him. And then on the flip side, you have this issue, which is the weakest. Cause he's not even shown. It's just the shot of the satellite. Um, I only have two notes for this entire story. Uh, it's stupid. It's just flat stupid. And Patton looks just like you. Now, you're probably going to expect me if I'm talking about Patton that I'm going to say George C. Scott. No, he looks like Marlon Brando, on, especially on page three. Um, I just thought it was really odd. And again, it has to be pointed out. This story is stupid. Um, that's it. That's all I got on GI Combat 275. What do you got, Mike? Uh, agreed and agreed. Yeah. It was not good. So I mean, the the, the monitor appearance here is so negligible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have not. It could have been just not there at all, mm-hmm. and it would have been fine. You know, it's it's. I almost think that it was stuck in in post production. That's you know that's very possible. That is very possible because it affects the story not at all. Mm-hmm. And. Uh... Yeah, is it is it even remark? I don't even think I don't have it open in front of me, but I don't think Stewart even remarks on it. I think it's nope. just there, which is it is just yeah. there. So it's like it's like one of the it's the opposite of the Wonder Woman issue we covered last time. Yeah, yeah, no no real involvement at all. All right, quickly moving on, we have Warlord number ninety one. The Warlord gives a short history lesson on the past of Warlord and Scartarsis. Or Scar, I always want to call it that, Scartaris. Now, that's what it reads in the crossover index. I think what they meant to say was that the Monitor gives a short history lesson on the past of Warlord and Scartaris. But it actually says the Warlord gives it, which he does not. The Monitor's role, page 14, last two panels, through page 18, first three panels deep in the cold reaches of outer space travis morgan is also the subject of intense interest that's how this uh, chapter begins after establishing another establishing shot of the satellite which is drawn completely differently from all other shots of the satellite thus far we go inside to see lila looking completely differently than we've seen her before she has an orange jumper bright red lipstick and white gloves she is loading the Morgan history tapes into a machine for the monitor. That's all on page 14. Over the course of pages 15, 16, and 17, we learn that on June 16th, 1969, Lieutenant Colonel Travis Morgan was flying spy, uh, spy, spy plane missions over Russia when he was forced to seek an emergency landing after taking damage from Soviet missiles. Attempting to fly over the North Pole to an Alaskan support base, Morgan suddenly found himself over a verdant tropical region where he was forced to eject. Under a blazing sun which never moved, Morgan discovered his new world was populated by creatures that should have perished from the Earth millions of years ago. The Monitor's tapes go on to explain the nature of Scartaris in the Hollow Earth before he and Lila agree that it is a fascinating story about a fascinating man. Uh, again, I only have a few notes on this one. This is early Dan Jurgens. He'd only been uh, doing art and comics two, three years, maybe four at most. 
Um, but what's funny is that this is more or less contemporaneous with uh, a story that we looked at last time, and I've forgotten what the hell that was already. What was? Oh, uh, Tales of the Legion, Legion of Superheroes. Superheroes. You know, I re- I really liked that. Um, it's not that I don't like this. Please don't get me wrong, but it's different. It looks much more newbie amateurish to me than that Tales one, uh, Tales of the Legion one looked. Maybe it's the inker, although Dan Atkins, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was a veteran inker by this point, I think. But anyway, it has a, as I say, kind of amateurish, kind of newbie look to it. And it looks a bit rushed in the in the backgrounds uh, in a lot of instances are the kind of backgrounds I don't like where it's just like one solid color. There's not a lot of detail. There's not a lot of stuff put into it. So I'm I'm wondering if it's that Jurgens didn't have just didn't get the proper artistic support this time around because it's not like uh, I'm I'm gonna blame yeah. it on that I'm gonna I'm gonna totally blame it on the yeah I, I really think that's what it comes down to um this I I don't know if this is what it was meant to do or meant to be but this is a great introductory issue to the series I'm almost positive mm-hmm. that this was the first issue of Warlord I ever read as a matter of fact I think it was the only one I owned for a long time. Um, up until fairly recent years, I think the only other issue I ever had of uh, the Warlord was also a crossover issue, which was the Legends crossover with uh, Dasad. So this was a really good introduction to the Warlord and his world and his history. I wonder, was that the point of this? Were they intentionally using, uh, I want to say the crossover, but this isn't really a crossover. It's a pre-Christ monitor appearance, but were they using that to maybe draw some folks in? I don't know, because you have to remember, this was at a time before solicits and the internet and all that, so who the hell knew that the monitor was going to show up in this issue? But retroactively, that's what it feels like. Like, like uh, uh, who's the writer on this? Carrie Burkett. Like, Carrie Burkett was using that to maybe hook some people, you know? Hey, if they're going to check this out for the monitor, maybe they'll stay because it's a good story kind of thing. Having now read this, or rather reread it, um... You know, it, it keeps making me feel bad that I haven't read more of this because despite this not at all being my genre, sword and sorcery and all that, it was a damn good story. I really enjoyed it. And and it's fascinating to me on several levels. For one, it just looks like it's fun. But also, I've long had a fascination with the story of um, Admiral Byrd, who was on an expedition flying over I believe it was the South Pole, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but over one of the poles anyway, when he very famously began to report coming across this green zone in which he found a lush tropical environment and large animals and essentially things that should not exist in the real world. This is a real story, by the way. This is not fiction. He he really saw or reported to have seen this, and that's what led to so many stories of, you know, like uh, over at Marvel, you've got the Savage Land, here you've got Scartaris, and other stories of Lost Worlds and or the Hollow Earth. Uh, that directly spins out of Bird's report of this green zone at one of the poles. And so this kind of tying into that just... You know, it, it, it fascinates it fascinates me on that level because while I'm kind of non-committal on whether I believe any of that bullshit or not, it's it's just fun to think about. How fun would it be if there really was this 
lost prehistoric world where dinosaurs, you know, dinosaurs still roam the earth kind of thing. I, I that's just a fun concept to think about. And that seems like that's the world that Warlord plays in. So one of these days, I got to get off my ass and read more Warlord because I have something like 50 issues of it that I've never even looked at. So, but yeah, that's pretty much all I got on this issue. What'd you have, Mike? I liked, I liked it quite a bit. I liked the stuff with him in the past, showing that pretty much from the beginning, this guy is going to take up for the little guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like you, I'm not a big sword and sorcery guy, uh, but Warlord, I guess it's because it's a DC property, it's always seemed kind of appealing. I know my brother-in-law, the, the guy that married my eldest sister, I think the only comics he kept were his Warlord collection and his Conan books, because uh, he had like a complete run of the title. The uh, The art was a little off, like you said, and again, I, I don't blame Jurgens for that, because I've seen enough Jurgens from this time period to know that, that he was better than this. So it's either an inker or maybe he had a cold. I don't know. The uh, the monitor thing is, like, on page 15, is that monitor got, like, a full head of hair? You know, I thought I had that in my notes somewhere, and then... Uh... As I'm looking here, it's not there. So I wonder if I wrote it down somewhere else and then forgot to copy it over into my notes on the computer. But yeah, I made the same the same note. Where is it? Page Yeah, page 15 first. Yeah, it clearly looks like he has a full head of hair. So again, yeah, little discrepancies. I'm surprised I didn't point that out in my in my thing. I, somehow I missed that. But I, it's funny, I caught it while I was reading it and then forgot to transpose it into my notes, but... Yeah, it does. You, you you can actually see like the part in his hair and everything. <laughs> so, but no, good uh, good issue, good story. Liked it uh, with uh, liked it as a warlord story. Not really too hot on it as a monitor appearance. Yeah, it seems very inconsistent with everything uh, everything else that we've seen. Yeah, it so. was. The satellite looked very different. Lila looks incredibly different. Um, but yeah, where's that shot? Yeah, the satellite. Although I did notice something. I, I failed to point it out. But see here, page 14, that first panel that has the monitor appearance with the satellite. There's that projection out the side of it that almost looks like a telescope or something. Mm-hmm. One of the um, pre-crisis monitor appearances that we were looking at last episode, uh, I also noticed something. It looked much larger, almost like the the the... Uh, weapon dish on the on the side of the Death Star it was it was much larger, but it also looked like it could be uh, uh, a telescope or something. It was this protuberance on the side of the satellite that I'd never really noticed in other panels before, and I meant to point it out and forgot. But anyway, it's kind of an interesting idea anyway that he has this uh, telescope sticking out of the side of his satellite. But yeah, everything is a little off appearance wise in this particular one. Well, folks, that's it. Now I know what some of you are probably going to say, or what some of you are probably thinking. You're probably thinking, well, wait, 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 there's more. What about Jonah Hex number 90? What about things like Tales of the Teen Titans number 58? Here's the deal. Uh, and I kind of talked about this a little bit last time, but I, I feel like it bears reiterating. Uh, the next thing along, publishing-wise, and the next thing along that we're going to cover is Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. So we still have, I believe the count is four, four remaining quote-unquote pre-crisis monitor appearances. However, 
in publishing order, they actually appeared on the stands after crisis number one hit. So timeline wise, they're pre-crisis monitor appearances, but in the coverage that we're going to cover, we're covering them in publishing order. So we will be covering them down the road as they actually hit the stands. I hope that explanation made some sort of sense. Anyway, man, I can't be more excited for my next words. Next episode. Guys, gals, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Finally, at long last, Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I don't know about Mike, but I feel just fine. Oh, I thought you were about to say it's the moment everyone's been waiting for. I'm getting a new co-host. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, you bail on me now. I will drive to Florida and kill you. I just want you to know that. So, <laughs> Dude, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I couldn't do this with anybody else. I, <laughs> I You know, I, I, I know that uh, I've been awful schmaltzy both on and off the air lately. But I, I'm just, I'm so excited the show's back. Oh, me too. And I'm so excited we're here. You know, it's been, it's, God damn, it's been a long road, but I think this is where it's all going to pay off because I, I could not be more excited. Uh, you know, um, not, you know, not to be down or anything, but, you know, every once in a while it, it has happened where I feel like I've taken a bit of, uh, a bit of flack from folks about some negativity or perceived negativity in whatever, you know, the books we cover or what's going on and kind of whatever the case may be. But I'm hoping that all changes with this because I'm telling you guys, you won't see me more excited than I'm going to be going into to crisis because I, I just I love this story. You know, as I, as I want to say, crisis is my watchman. I just I hold this up as this is this is the best comics can be. This is the, the pinnacle. And I'm just really excited to get into this finally after such a, a long haul to get here. I think it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. So looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. We're going to cover it top to bottom, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and to go off something Scott was saying before, how we're, we're going to be covering the what are technically crisis management type stories during crisis. Um the the way the best way I can relate to it is another show I do, where me and my friend Jeff talk about the post crisis Superman. Jeff's initial idea for the show when I broached him about it was that we would do it in chronological order, meaning we would look at all of the post crisis Superman stories, like the year one annuals and stuff, and cover them in that order. Uh, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go chronological. I want to go cover month, basically. And I'm glad Scott felt the same way about doing the Crisis books the way we're going to do it. Because we could have sat down and created, like, this huge chart and basically... Because, like, for example, the Firestorm crossover issues take place during the first issue of Crisis. In fact, they take place a little before we see Firestorm. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, That would have driven me crazy. Because then you're you're searching through all of this stuff to try to get it right to make the timeline work. And to me, covering Crisis, and it's like everything else we've covered, we're not covering a timeline. We're covering a series as it was coming out. And that's why I think doing the Crisis the way we are, which is its own little show... 
And for the first, like, six months, that's all it's going to be. It's going to be us talking about that issue of Crisis. And then as time goes on, a second episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, Crisis on Infinite Earths, or how would that break down into uh, an acronym? (laughs) T-O-T-J-S-A-P-C-O-I-E. There you go. That's not rolling off the tongue. Um, We'll have like a second episode in a month talking about all the crossover issues. And Scott and I were looking at the diagram. And at one point, it's going to be huge. First couple months, we're going to be fine. It's going to be easy sailing. But uh, no, it's just important to, to me to present it as it was presented to us of the audience originally. Right. to Scott, because I wasn't collecting at the time. You know, to get it like that. Because it's not about... It's about the story, but it's not about the... And it's about the minutia of the story, but it's not about, like, writing a novel and making everything line up. It's about covering books as they were presented originally and the excitement of that. So that's how I see it, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree with you because if if there's one thing that I consider my my mission statement of this coverage that we're going to do is my intent is to convey how I felt as a 17 year old as crisis hit because it was an excite it was such an exciting time to be into comics and I'm going to be trying really hard to take that 30 year step back and, and present it that way. How did it feel? What was I thinking? You know, what, why does this stand as, as such a monumental thing? And, and so that's more the approach. And I think if we did it any other way than strictly linear as it was coming out and we tried to do it in some sort of timeline way or something, I, I think there's a really a very real possibility you kind of suck the fun out of it then it becomes for one it becomes homework but also it becomes uh you know trying to get everything to line up and and there's a possibility that it might dilute the essence of the story because you're you're concentrating on on the minutia and you're concentrating on getting things to line up more than you're concentrating on what is the story? What's the narrative going on here? If that makes any sense. And so, yeah, I, I just feel like this is the more organic way to go on this whole thing. No, but I, I'm excited to, um, I'm going to be hip deep in research because we're going to be covering the book. We're going to be covering the story. We're going to be covering the characters, uh, you know, but we're also going to be covering as it happens, the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on at DC Comics, or at least the stuff we have access to, because I've right. I've bought a bunch of uh, well, I had some of these already, but I but I scoured the internet and I tried to find like fanzines that had articles about Crisis and interviews with Marv Wolfman and interviews with George Perez and everybody and Len Wein and all that. And we have I uh, have you know we both have the Crisis Companion that mm-hmm. came with the Absolute Edition. I mean, I was not collecting when this book came out, but I, I think it's very telling that I have the Absolute Edition. And I tracked down the first hardcover edition that came out in um, 1998. Is that the it, gray one? Yeah, the gray one. The gray in fact, slipcase? Yeah. In fact, the the poster that came with that, that is, uh, 
a recreate that is just a, a version of Crisis Number Seven's cover is on my wall right now. Yeah, I pulled it out when I changed out the posters because I knew we were getting to it, and I have the soft cover, which was actually the first one I bought when it came out that I will never get rid of because it's signed by both Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Uh, so it's just that's how much I love this story. I have two copies of it. <laughs> I have the copies that I've collected over the years, and a couple years ago, they're so cheap on eBay right now. Uh, I, I bought a new, just to have like kind of a more pristine set, just to have it. I mean, that that's how much this means to me. I have both of the the, the crossover indexes. I mean, I don't have a full run, a full collection of the action figures, but I'm starting to think that they may be getting cheaper on eBay, so I may be starting to hunt those if I can get them cheap. Yeah, I've been thinking about going back and doing that myself because I think the only one that I have is uh, is the monitor. I always wanted the Earth 2 Robin. I have the Earth 2 Robin. I have the Superman. I have the Supergirl. Hmm. Because I love that Supergirl costume, and I will brook no argument on that. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dissenting opinions are not welcome on the subject of the 80s headband Supergirl <laughs> costume. <laughs> But no, I, I am just like Scott. Even though I was not collecting comics, I came in uh, about two years after, uh, like a year, year and a half after the crisis ended, actually. But having said that, I, I you know, growing up as, in, as a comics fan myself, the crisis was always something to be revered. And uh, when we get into the next episode, I'll go to my history of getting it, because I think you're going to find it kind of amusing how I actually read the series. Uh, because, uh, preview, it was not issues 1 through 12 <laughs> going in order. Uh, God. Yeah, it was. That just blows my mind, because, yeah. Because I, I know that it, it can be, you know, if you're if you're not heavily steeped or you know if you were not rather heavily steeped or versed in dc at that particular moment in time i you know i fully acknowledge that it could be confusing it could be a bit of a like oh my god i'm overwhelmed so i can't imagine reading that out of logical sequence that that would just wow i i you know kudos for sticking with it man <laughs> and not just going i don't know what's going on so th so this is how it's going to work next time next week uh, Crisis uh, on Infinite Earths number one. For the rest of 2015, our release schedule is going to be a little weird. So if there is a week or two where you don't see an episode of Tales, there's a reason for that. Scott and I talked about it, and we figured the best way to celebrate Crisis is to do it a month at a time. Mm -hmm. So basically, the month it came out is the month we're covering that issue. Which also means the issues of All-Star Squadron and Infinity Incorporated that came out that same month that don't yet tie into it are going to get their own episode of Tales. But it will be the only episode of Tales that month. Right. So things are going to get a little more hot and heavy as the year goes on. Uh, and we're actually kind of thankful for the lead time we're going to get on. Yes. That. Yes. Because uh, we, we got a lot of books to read, folks. So... Um, but that's how it's going to go. So, like I said, I know that our release schedule has been kind of erratic around the holidays and everything. Uh, I think we've been really good and, you know, we've really kind of, we, we took a, Scott Scott made me take a hard look at uh, the sound quality of the episode, which I appreciate because I always, I, I'm always striving to make it better. Uh, even though there's a part of me that's going, I'm doing this for free, goddammit. But, the, but, but <laughs> there, there's a, there's a bigger 
uh, version of me that's like, no, this has got to sound the best it can. And I think, you know, we, we worked really hard to get the show back on track and to get it sounding the best it can sound and going into this. So I appreciate everyone's dedication to listening to the show. Uh, apologies to Jose Rivera, who did not know that the feed had changed, <laughs> uh, and that there were new episodes, because he, apparently he just didn't realize the last couple of episodes have came out, and I do feel bad about that, because we never did one of the trailers like everyone else, where, you know, it's not oh, on the main TTF feed anymore. Uh, so next time, uh, actually the next episode of Tales You Hear is going to be a little different, because Scott and I, the next time we get together to record, to peel back the curtain, we're going to be working on some new outros, and and all that uh we've got a trailer for uh crisis we may want to work on a trailer for tales as well Mm -hmm. uh, just to get an updated one of those out but it's going to be an exciting year folks it really is uh january has been kind of a front heavy (laughs) uh a couple of weeks of us getting this on track but i think once we get on track and barring any kind of major life interruptions like i've had the past two years so knock on wood (laughs) Um, we're really going to get this done and do it right and it's going to be exciting and don't think that after crisis we're just going to pack it up and give up because there's oh we're not oh we haven't had this talk <laughs> no no um, no I'm, I'm teasing 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 because we've got yeah all star squadron is going to be wrapping up but we've got young all stars coming up infinity incorporated chugs on for a really long time and looking way down the road there's the 91 Justice Society miniseries. There's the 92 10 issue series by mm-hmm. Len Straczewski and Mike Parabek. Uh, and from there, it gets kind of wonky about what we're going to do. Uh, don't know exactly what we're going to do between that series and JSA. But no, we're, we're, we're not giving up the show after Crisis. We may take a couple weeks off, but <laughs> <laughs> go on vacation. Well, somebody can go to Disney anytime you want. So, <laughs> just saying. Hey, Scott Gardner, you just finished covering the crisis on Infinite Earths. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link 
donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 